I'm Benjamin Wittes, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. And I'm Susan Hennessy, Managing Editor of Lawfare. You're listening to Rational Security on the ER podcast feed. For more of our columns and exclusive Lawfare content, read us at foreignpolicy.com. So the Secretary of State called the president a moron. Yes. I Has that... anyone in this room not called the president a moron? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's like... Was anyone surprised by this revelation? No, I just think there's a, like, I think that's a moment in American history. It's probably a first. Oh, that... come on. You don't think that most secretaries of state have had a moment when they felt that their boss was a moron? No, no, but... But most secretaries of state then don't go have their people talk about that moment to the press, yes. right? <laughs> where, where they, you know, there's just that moment where NBC publishes that the secretary of state thinks that the president is a moron and said it. And I just think that we should all take a moment to appreciate that that's a we're, – we're, we're now the kind of country where the Secretary of State calls the president a moron and then leaks that he did it to to NBC. I, I think what's actually more notable here is that he's probably the last person in Washington to call the president a moron. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the moron edition. I'm Shane Harris, moronic reporter. Sometimes I feel like a moron, sometimes you don't. I like them. I like. I like. Uh, I, I we should just you should moron. just use the word moronic profligately throughout the episode. We need to. I need to do like a quick etymology of the word moron. Frankly, I'm sort of think it's sort of restrained that he called him a moron. I mean, there were so many other words he could have used. Exactly. Like if you're just going to straight up insult your boss, like you might as well. Like, go. really go all in. Moron's so when Susan kind of insults soft. me, she does not hold back I from add moron. expletives. <laughs> Early 20th century. <laughs> as a medical term denoting an adult with a mental age of about 8 to 12. From Greek, moron, neuter of moros, foolish. Excellent. Maybe it wasn't an insult, but just a Well, this is interesting now. So because now critics of President Trump have placed him on both ends of the age spectrum because Tellerson calls him a moron which equates to like childishness and Kim Jong-un called him a dotard, which is an old person. So, well, I, I also think it would be fun, to, was still it would the be best fun one. to collect yeah. all of the things that, uh, his senior people have said about him, uh, you know, not the uh, Dan Dresner kind of treating him like a child, but what are the adjectives and nouns they have used to describe him? Like that book that was published with Bushisms. This could be about Trumpism. Exactly. Got yeah. it. Jacob Weisberg's next project. You know, and because, and, <laughs> you know, Trump uh, was, you know, in, in Comey's testimony, he talked about the nature of the person, yeah. right? Like, I just think, and, yeah. and not the anonymous quotes, but the things that, you know, people have actually said about him that other people haven't denied. That, 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 I think that's actually would be a very, in, I mean, in all seriousness, a very interesting collection, kind of a measure of how our language around describing the president has changed. If rational security listeners want to crowdsource this and tweet us links uh, with quotes about senior people describing their boss, uh, we certainly wouldn't discourage that. All right, well, we're going to talk about that on the podcast week this week. Uh, of course, with my friends Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Tamara Kaufman. Wittes. Morons Hi, all. Morons all. Nusson moron. 
even if it's not in French, it works. Look at you showing off. <laughs> even that would be best if I actually didn't say it in French correctly. Right? <laughs> That'd be good. Uh, we're going to start. We're talking about President Trump. And Rex Tillerson, uh, who he also said he was wasting his time on negotiating with North Korea. Uh, Gunman opens fire in Las Vegas in the deadliest mass shooting in at least half a century. We're going to talk about the strange ISIS connection, non-connection to that. And an American is being held in Syria as an enemy combatant, a fact that you may have missed in the recent flood of news. Um, Let's go back to Tillerson. And specifically, I want to start by talking about this tweet that Trump put out over the weekend where he said he told Tillerson he was wasting his time negotiating with, as Trump put it, Little Rocket Man, and that Rex should save his energy, and that Trump promised he would not fail in dealing with North Korea. I guess two things struck me is that, A, and this came out before the revelation from NBC News that Tillerson had called Trump a moron and was prepared to resign last summer. Um, How does this not perhaps decisively undercut the Secretary of State in dealing with North Korea? And did Trump effectively signal, we're not negotiating, forget it, I'm going to deal with this through military means? Tomorrow, what do you think? Yeah, so I think this comes in the context of a series of tweets, irregular tweets over the last weeks in which Trump has seemingly escalated the confrontation with North Korea using loose rhetoric, shall we say. Um This weekend, though, I think this particular tweet caused a lot of alarm because Tillerson was on the road speaking to Asian partners at the very moment that Trump tweeted this, um, and also because it seemed to uh, rule out negotiations and therefore point the United States in in the direction of some kind of you know, preemptive military action or, you know, even if hinting that way might lead Kim Jong-un to conclude that that was the U.S. play uh, and that could lead to an unintended escalation. So I think that's why everyone was freaking out. Now, we've had some reporting in the interim that I think might help put this in context and put a different spin on it. Uh, there, this report um, that uh, that Trump told his advisors to paint him as a crazy man, not just on this issue, but in general. In other words, this is a negotiating tactic. And what we know is that the North Koreans have been essentially uninterested in negotiations on their nuclear program for quite a while now. We've been unable to pressure them to the table the way we did with Iran uh, through a multi-year multilateral sanctions program. Um, And so, you know, if Trump is trying to act like a crazy man in order to tell the North Koreans the time for talks is running out, jump on this train now or it's going to be gone, you know, that's one way to interpret this that I think is less alarmist. But even if that's the case, um, what Trump has done with this tweet is say, whatever you do, you know, nothing my secretary of state says is authoritative because I've just cut him off at the knees in public. His secretary who also acknowledged publicly for the first time that we are in direct contact with North Korea, which I mean, sort of that seemed to me like, and we do have he a actually channel. issued a public statement saying he was wasting his time <laughs> in direct contact. With. But it yeah, seemed to me that was him trying clear. to say like, look, I have this, I'm working this, I'm really working it in can, an active can, way. Can I just say something about the madman theory though? Since you, like, yeah. normally if like whether the madman theory is a plausible way to do diplomacy, if you're going to do the madman theory, having people leak that you're doing the madman theory is. Uh, you know, 
Th- th- that's it kind of like, undermines the whole strategy there. Right, right? It's like hanging a big placard on the actor <laughs> saying, acting, you know, <laughs> do not disturb. Right? Well, but um, I mean, first of all, this administration is is just replete with examples of reading the stage directions out loud. Right. But so I <laughs> and Trump wants nothing more than to get credit for the brilliance of his strategy, whatever outcome it may produce. So I think that's fairly easily explained. I think the real question here is, you know, no matter what his intent is and no matter how clever he thinks he's being in this, what's the actual impact of this behavior on the Chinese, on the North Koreans, on the Japanese and South Korean partners who are relying on the United States in this situation? And I think that this strategy, if that's what it is, if it's actually so well considered, um, doesn't fit the circumstances. It's There's no reason to believe that the North Koreans are going to leap at the prospect of negotiations now um, because, you know, they, they fear military action when we have at the same time a ton of American um, diplomacy going on. And, you know, they would... <laughs> If we suddenly cut off all communications with the Chinese and the North Koreans, then maybe that would be a signal, but that might lead them to preempt. So it's a very, very dangerous game of brinkmanship. And simultaneously, our allies and partners are left, you know, kind of rootless um, when the president says, well, the time for diplomacy is over. It's basically saying to them, "Okay, you're now under the gun. I mean, one thing that's not clear... I have suspicions that this is kind of the the trend that we've seen in the past, which is um, aides and allies scrambling to come up with a theory that sort of makes the president's actions seem consonant, right? So instead of just being like, he's crazy and he has no idea what he's doing, once he said all these things in retrospect, they've they've either given to him or constructed for themselves, oh, you know, it's this sort of this off-kilter theory. Um, you know, whether it's strategic or not, strategic to what end? It's yes. not clear to me that they have... Any kind of plan, any kind of articulation for what they want to do. So there's some sort of hints of, we'll put pressure on China. They, you know, bring North Korea to the negotiating table, refuse to come to the negotiating table with North Korea. I mean, they just, they really, the strategy sort of towards what goal. The other thing I do think is interesting and and interesting in the sense that um, Trump's sort of comments are so personal and personally directed against Tillerson is is that's the broader context of sort of what, um, you know, these reports about Tillerson wanting to resign and calling him a moron and sort of, uh, uh, you know, the, the broader context. And that's how poorly... Tillerson has played his hand here. If he actually is fed up, ready to quit, doesn't need the job, doesn't need the money, doesn't need the prestige, and doesn't need the headache, he's in kind of a powerful position because the Trump administration really cannot afford for the Secretary of State to step down right now. Right, every bad cop needs a good cop. Right, right. and, and considering that they've just lost, you know, uh, their HHS secretary, they've sort of they've got scandals on every front. Mm-hmm. It would be hugely disruptive to the administration to have a cabinet secretary step down. I'm not sure that's right. I mean, I think in a normal administration, that would be right. But they're down a DHS secretary in the middle of three hurricane responses. And in no rush to replace. And they don't seem to mind. Yeah. They got rid of the HHS secretary uh, under pressure. Uh, they don't really seem to mind that all that much. Uh, in, the, you know, in the middle of, uh, of this healthcare debacle. Uh, and uh, I don't think that they are 
internalizing costs the way a rational administration does. And so while I agree with you that objectively they can't afford it, I'm not sure they appreciate that they can't afford but it. But I, I do think that I think there's another way to read that, and that's that they understand that they do not have the basic juice to get a nominee through right now. And so one of the reasons why they are willing to have, you know, Elaine Ducos, a very good reputation, be the acting secretary at DHS is because they don't think that they have a candidate that they can confirm. Who <laughs> who even knows who they could get through as the HHS? Leave, leave aside. Right now. Leave aside. Who they who would accept a nomination? Exactly. Right? You know, the, yeah. the, there's a there's an antecedent problem to confirmation. <clears throat> and if that, anything, they're going to be driven to. to it's not going to be Trump's preferred <clears throat> candidate. They're going right. to be driven towards moderates that are kind of thrust on them. You know, by by Congress or by establishment Republicans. Or just putting point. Elaine Duke in charge or right. something. You know, naming yeah. her the permanent. So, and yet Tillerson has not leveraged that. At all. Well, we don't know. <laughs> I wonder if this is what he, in a way, is trying to do is leverage it. But I, I, I wondered about this in a different respect. Is what we're seeing from Tillerson in letting it be known he was thinking of resigning, now letting it known that he thinks the president is a moron, that he's clearly, it seems to me, trying to signal by doing that, that he does not believe that the president is equipped for this job. It's the same way when he said he didn't think that the president speaks for the American people, although he didn't quite say it, that it was kind of skillful the way he, the way he put it out there. Is this Tillerson trying to send up, you know, smoke signals to the American people and saying, you know, we've got a problem here? I think that that is giving him a lot more credit than he deserves. I think that... This is a guy who has never worked in government, but had clearly uh, a lot of self-confidence about what he could bring to the table. He believe, you know, clearly took the job with a certain set of expectations about the role he was going to play in a reset with China and a reset with Russia. He's been unable to achieve anything on either front. Um, clearly you know, was given a mandate to reorganize and and budget cut the department and has been unable to do that, both because of bureaucratic pressures and because of a really strong pushback from Congress. And, you know, by the way, his boss is humiliating him in public on a weekly basis. And so, no, I don't think this is really about signaling to the American people. I think it's much more likely your first hypothesis, Shane, that he's signaling through the press to Kelly and Mattis saying, I am at the end of my rope and you either get this guy to turn around on stuff that's important to me or I'm walking. But what's the, if, that, if that's the case, just to pursue that, because I think you're probably right that that is actually what he's after. What confidence would he reasonably have that those men are capable of doing that? I mean, it, I mean, there's, you know, we... At the beginning of the administration, we talked about the hopefulness of the pivot that Trump would sort of become presidential. I think all of us were immediately skeptical of that from the beginning. I mean, Tillerson can't think that John Kelly is going to suddenly get the president now on the right track and make it okay so Tillerson is he finds his behavior acceptable, right? I mean, this seems to me this is now is just really not a question of whether Tillerson is going to resign. It's just what moment is he going to pick to do it? I think – Tillerson, there have been stories in the past that Tillerson wants to serve a year um, so that it looks kind of respectable. I don't know why he thinks that is a more respectable look than uh, resigning at the point at which your service is clearly uh, not fruitful and not helpful. 
uh, on the basis that you're not being given the opportunity to be effective. Um, the problem for Tillerson, I think, is that unlike Mattis, very few people, you know, look at Tillerson as somebody who is, uh, you know, an effective good leader who's insulating his department from the craziness of the Trump administration. He's regarded as basically sane and sensible on some matters that Trump is not and a destructive presence in his own right with respect to his department. And so you don't have the you know, there's no reservoir of goodwill toward Rex Tillerson at the State Department mm. the way there is toward Mattis at the Defense Department. And I think he's probably at this point a quite isolated figure wedged between a State Department that loathes him and a White House that clearly has contempt for him. But then how do we explain, you know, this sort of these articles are describing Mattis as really, really trying to convince Tillerson to stay, sort of going to bat for him. We know that Mattis has a very different view about the role of the State Department. He's talked about the need for that soft power foreign diplomacy stuff. Why is Mattis fighting for Tillerson? Oh, well, be, be, be. well, no, no. Tillerson is not the um, he was not the progenitor and he's not the standard bearer for cutting down the State Department. That's coming out of the White House. Um, so I don't think Tillerson has the power to alter that trajectory. Um, that's that's a dictate from the president and from OMB. And I think Mattis knows that, too. I, I think, though, that probably um, it's that Mattis has a keener understanding than we do of the likely alternatives. Mm. And I and I think Mattis also probably has a, a, a pretty refined sense of the the sensible role that Tillerson is playing on some kind of gestalt macro policy questions, particularly North Korea, where, you know, I, you know, uh, Steph Haggard, who was uh, uh, whose enthusiasm for Rex, T North Korea expert, whose enthusiasm for Rex Tillerson, I think, is certainly well under good control, uh, describes his approach to North Korea as entirely rational mm -hmm. and sensible in contrast to some of the uh, descriptions of the larger administration. And I think when you, uh, if you're Mattis and you say uh, on, on those macro policy points, it's good to have an adult who basically has a sensible approach. But that does not mean that he's doing a good job running the State Department mm -hmm. in a larger sense. I mean, I'll just say one sort of parting thought on this, which is that I think Ben's right that Tillerson's trying to set his own context for his eventual resignation. But I also hold out the possibility that things could look very different in terms of Rex Tillerson's ledger a few weeks from now. So this North Korea situation has been bubbling along for months, actually, in some ways since the beginning of the administration. And Tillerson is trying to work the Chinese. The Chinese are a week away from their party Congress. And until that's mm -hmm. over and Xi's leadership is consolidated, they're not going to make any big moves. But it could well be that two weeks from now, the Chinese American sort of coordination on North Korea looks very di different. Tillerson can bring home some kind of achievement, and then he can walk out the door with his head held high.
I mean, before we move on, I do think it's worth noting that the, uh, the statement that prompted Tillerson to call the president a moron was that a meeting the day before in which he had compared the decision-making process on troop levels to the renovation of a high-end New York restaurant. Well, you um, know, those high-end New York restaurants are really complicated places. Right. So I just think we should acknowledge that it appears that the president is actually a moron. Well, <laughs> can, I, can I just remind everybody of Michael Kinsley's uh, great definition of a gaffe, which is that when a politician uh, recklessly and without regard for consequences speaks the truth. And I think uh, Tillerson, uh, Tillerson's uh, comments about Trump fit the definition of Kinsley's gaffe to a T. All right, let's talk a bit about the uh, the shooting in Las Vegas this week, um, <clears throat> where I think we're still <clears throat> seeing it. The final death count seems to be around 58 or 59 people. It's the deadliest mass killing uh, shooting in at least half a century. Um, I want to talk about a, a different angle of this that I think is perhaps more interesting or also of interest for our listeners, which is <clears throat> this strange claim that ISIS made in the aftermath of the shooting that the shooter was... Uh, one of theirs, uh, acting on behalf of the group, and was sort of a, a soldier in the you know uh, tradition of others who have gone out and committed mass shootings in the United States and elsewhere. Um, Susan, I'm curious, what did you? I mean, a, I don't think we've seen anybody really verify this claim as credible, and there are usually ways that we judge whether such claims are in fact coming from ISIS Central, depending on the media channels that come through. But let's presume for a second that it's not credible. What does it say to you that ISIS tried to come out and claim this event uh, for themselves? Is it Rukmini Kalamachi, who is uh, a New York Times reporter, who kind of is the the best source on uh, on sort of ISIS activity, yes. um, has been following this and, and has been giving really useful sort of contextual explainers. Um, and so, you know, one odd thing is, uh, you know, there's there's a little bit of an assumption that well, ISIS just claims credit for everything, and so you Which know, they of don't. course, they're going to claim credit. Yeah, that's not, that's yeah. not they're true. They're usually pretty credible about uh, right. Their so claims. Th- uh, right. So that's not true that, um, you know, that it's, it's actually relatively rare for them to claim credit for things um, that it her saying that sort of it, it's not particularly cr- credible. However, that ISIS has made a number of sort of uh, mistaken claims in the past uh, couple months. So um, they claimed credit for this Manila casino attack that turned out to be like a just a, a robbery gone wrong. And there's actually been a number of cases and she didn't her explanation was, well, maybe they're getting careless, maybe they're getting desperate. But this actually is sort of fitting into a pattern of of them claiming credit for things that turn out to be demonstrably false after the fact. I think one of the challenges here is that sort of bizarrely some 48, 72 hours later, there still does not appear to be any motive. And so it's just, it's so bizarre to put this in context because it's out there. There's no verification. There's no reason to believe it's credible. And yet there's, there's nothing else. Can I, can I venture a hypothesis about what happened here? Uh, With ISIS or the shooter? With ISIS, which is that, ISIS engaged in Islamophobia here. You know, just like right-wingers in the United States saw shooting in a public space and a mass shooting, and they said, radical Islamic terrorism. ISIS saw shooting and they said, radical Islamic terrorism. Let's claim credit for it. Uh, Let's get in early on this. Uh, And, of course, it turns out to be uh, a... Uh, an old white guy with no known uh, ties to uh, a radical Islamic extremist or radical anything other extremist 
uh, and we have no idea why he did it. And my guess is that that columnist for the Las Vegas Review, who uh, you know, who said something very similar to what ISIS said, and ISIS were doing exactly the same thing, mm-hmm. which was looking at an event and responding highly prejudicially to it that it must be Muslims. And ISIS was saying, "Oh, great, let's let's claim credit for it." And, would, and well, he was saying, "Let's give them credit for it." You know, I I feel like it's not. I think you're on to something, Ben, but I don't think it's necessarily about Islamophobia. I think it does say something about the way the media and the American public and the global public react to mass violence, which is that our frame, we're, we're all so obsessed with terrorism at this point that our frame for everything is terrorism. And we assume terrorism until proven otherwise. And that's exactly what journalists were doing on Twitter, um, you know, immediately. And and I think even once it became clear that the ISIS claim didn't have any connection to things on the ground and therefore there were reasons to doubt it, there were still a lot of journalists on Twitter saying, well, but look how organized he was. Well, look, he used hidden cameras. It can't be that he's just a a crazy person with a bee in his bonnet who, you know, read a bunch of stuff and decided to play, you know, play uh, special ops in a hotel room in Las Vegas. So, I mean, we still don't, first of all, we still don't know. Right. We but, don't know what it was. But I think, you know, both ISIS and the Las Vegas Review were jumping on something about the public mindset that may have something to do with Islamophobia, but what it really has to do with is our hypersensitivity to terrorist threats. I think no, that's I, tr- I, I mean, there was, there is, it's not totally crazy. I mean, right, so the, this is, you know, sort of the Paris attacks, you know, the model of mass shooting at concert venue. Um, Nidal you know, Hassan. The, right, the, the the Manchester attacks at the Ariana Grande concert. I mean, that that is... We, San Bernardino. Right, there's some, but but sort of even taking Nadal Hassan and San Bernardino apart for sort of the, the shooting commonalities, like targeting, mass shooting and targeting oh, concerts. Uh, concerts. So it's... It's not. I mean, I agree. We are so primed to, to assume terrorism, but especially whenever we have markers of, oh, OK, we've seen an attack like this on two metrics. It's just it's near impossible. The one thing that's sort of weird is usually if you commit an act of terrorism, you want people to know you committed an act of terrorism in retrospect. That's kind of how the impact thing works. So can we can we presume it disproven because he didn't leave any of that stuff? So I don't think we should presume anything. But I do think the like one thing that I have really learned about mass violence and terrorist attacks in general is that the idea that there's a MO of a particular type of terrorist and that other terrorists don't watch it is really wrong. That, you know, um uh all over the world people learned how to do suicide bombings from the way Hamas did them in the early 90s and that became a mode that was uh, adopted very widely the paris manchester style sh- mass shooting events were themselves learned from columbine types in Ex- the united states exactly. who were not you know ISIS types. These guys watch each other and the 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 tactics that they adopt are quite 
counter-ideological. They're, they just learn uh, tactical improvements just the way militaries do, and they become more effective over time. And that's why these mass violence keep getting worse. Why do you guys think that Trump was not quick in this case as he was just not not long ago in it was in London, right? There was a that he jumped on uh, in Spain too to jump on this and call it terrorism. It seems like his MO to jump on these things right away and say terrorist violence. He didn't do that. Trump doesn't like calling anything terrorism if it wasn't done by a Muslim. Well, right. So I think that's the first point is that he do, he does that jumping on social media thing when there's clear advantage for domestic, his domestic politics, and there wasn't any clear advantage here. And secondly, this happened in the United States. He's been doing that with attacks in Europe, and that's also a way of kind of bl- punching the nose of European leaders that he thinks are soft on these issues. The politics are different for him. Right. I also think he has strong instincts to not want to condemn gun violence in a particular way, right? He gets that that's a whole separate ideological issue. And so I do think he's more inclined to be restrained following a mass shooting because, oh God, he doesn't want to say something that's going to get him in trouble with sort of the Second Amendment NRA part of his base. Although if, he was if not he res- even thought about it Although he was not restrained in response to the Pulse nightclub shooting you know i i think i think for him and i i I don't i don't want to talk about what's in his heart i'm just talking objectively about the way he behaves if a muslim does something he will respond differently that's violent that involves death to people he talks about it differently he engages it differently uh than if somebody else does it and uh, I just think that we can't pretend that that's not the reality of the president that we're dealing with. I, I think you're absolutely right, Ben. And I think that we can extend that and say that when a hurricane hits a Latino uh, population in Puerto Rico, he behaves differently than when it hits Texas. So so I, I will say in his very, very limited defense on the uh, responding differently if it's ISIS than if it's some guy. I do think, by the way, that ISIS is different from the problem of mass shootings. And you, our whole law actually responds, our whole legal system responds differently if it's an overseas-based attack by a designated foreign terrorist organization against whom we are using military force. We have all kinds of different vocabularies, legal and political, than if it's some guy who goes uh, crazy in his living room and hoards a lot of guns and does some bad stuff. And so I don't think that, I don't think that Trump's bigotry is the only explanation for that difference. But I do think it's a big part of, you know, the fact that he the I, I do think it's a it's a significant piece of the difference. But what's notable is not just the nature of his response, which in part is 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 bolstered by the fact that we you know legally and otherwise respond differently. It's also that he chose to wait for sufficient facts to emerge. Yeah, that he never does that with Muslims. Right, right. Even to verify whether or not the shooter was Muslim or not. I mean, right. He the whether or not you know John Kelly had him you know was sitting on his phone or something. Um, just I Actually, think it is that's notable. probably what it was. And so let's give 
him credit for restraint. It's the pivot. This, he's presidential now. <laughs> it's this the is moment it, guys. he became president. <laughs> All right. Um, let's close the, the podcast. We're talking about a story that um, <clears throat> I think surprisingly, maybe some would even say shockingly, disturbingly, um, that has not gotten hardly any attention in amongst all the other news to talk about, and that is that an American is being held in Syria as an enemy combatant. This was somebody who was fighting for ISIS, right, and was captured on the battlefield in Syria. Um, ben or Susan, do you want to kind of give us the primer on what's going on here, and then let's talk about the implications of it? Yeah, so the primer is a really, really short one because there's incredibly little that's known. Um, sort of the, you know, the, the Department of Defense three weeks ago at this point said that they had um, uh, not captured an American citizen. An American citizen had turned himself in. Um, he'd been fighting on behalf of ISIS and had turned himself into uh, to SDF forces in Syria. Um, so since then, there's been lots and lots of questions of DOD. They've confirmed they are holding him as an enemy combatant. That's DOD's terminology. Um, the Red Cross has said that they are planning a week ago so that they were planning on uh, on meeting yeah, with they've this confirmed that, that they, they met have. with okay. him and yeah. they have now that's that's sort of the most recent update other than that radio silence radio silence on the hill radio silence from the pentagon press corps oddly like this is really um potentially a very very significant story with lots of substantial legal ramifications um but just yeah the 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 remarkable thing is the lack of information at this point. So, I mean, I I can understand why the administration wouldn't want to make a big deal about the story because it forces on them some policy decisions that maybe they weren't ready to make or don't really want to take on battles around them right now. Like, are we going to put someone new into Guantanamo um, or are we going to take this enemy combatant and hold him on U.S. soil? Um, you know, how are we going to handle this? Um I I do I am really floored though that there isn't more media investigation of this like who is this guy whose family in the United States has been saying that their kid went off to fight right. ISIS like you know to fight with ISIS why don't we know anything more about this? this is, yeah, it seems like this is analogous to you know where we were in the early days of the war on terror when there were people I mean no, isn't it I mean I I, I think it's premature <clears throat> to say that. Um, so a few caveats to, to this story. One is um, that this is not the first time that we've captured somebody and in theater in a military context and then had to try to figure out what to do with him. And the idea that there is some authority to uh, hold somebody – um, and figure out a disposition is not especially controversial. Uh, and so if you imagine that the guy shows up in a few days or a few weeks in the Southern District of New York and is facing indictment, and what you're dealing with is a brief period of military detention for somebody who turned himself in in theater to an allied military force that does not deal with the Justice Department, that would be generally consistent with the Obama administration's approach to these matters. Uh, they developed a set of protocols in the Warsami case that are, uh, you know, based on that brief period of military detention and interrogation followed by 
you a pause, then you bring in the FBI or what's called a clean team who had nothing to do with the earlier interrogation. They Mirandize him. They make clear that he's now in law enforcement custody. He ends up in New York. And so if if the result of this is that the guy shows up you know, relatively quickly in law enforcement custody, it won't even be a significant departure from what we've been doing for the last few years. <coughs> but do years. we usually designate them enemy combatants in that scenario? So the, the Obama administration avoided the term enemy combatant entirely, including, by the way, for people at Guantanamo. Um, and they called them unprivileged enemy belligerents, and they used the term only when they absolutely had to. And in cases like the Warsami case or the Abu Qatala case, he was on a ship, you know, a, a slow ship, by the way. <laughs> very, a, a, very, a very, very They said they were moving waters. that boat just as fast as they right. possibly could. <laughs> they were rowing. And, you know, he ended up here, and he's on trial now. And uh, and that they just called it, you know, a period of military detention, but it's not legally different. Well, from- then what does it tell us that this word and this is why I guess I mentioned the war on terror is because it resonates so yes. strongly with that period is now in the lexicon of the Defense Department and the military. So uh, the answer is there. This is a word that the Obama administration avoided because it had had uh it had chest-thumping Bush administration overtones in the view of the Obama administration, and the Trump administration is presumably using it because it has chest-thumping uh, Bush administration overtones of so toughness. So someone made the call to use it. But it's think. not a – yes, somebody clearly made the call to use it, but it's not – uh, a, a term that connotes a, a genuine legal distinction between mm. other hmm. – you know, people who would be held in military custody. Now, if he shows up in Guantanamo, that would be an earthquake because even right. the Bush administration never held, never, never knowingly held a U.S. citizen in Guantanamo. And the moment they figured out that Hamdi was a U.S. citizen, they brought him to the United States. If he comes to the United States in military custody in a form like Hamdi or Padilla, that would be a very big deal because that would be a decision after the Hamdi and Padilla litigations to try to do this again. That would be huge. And then the fourth possibility is that you hold him for some period of time overseas in military custody and then turn him over to an allied uh, force and that would be uh, the the similar to the Munaf case and the Supreme Court uh, said in that instance that there was really nothing the government there was nothing the courts could do to prevent that. This so- is a very interesting possibility though because he was he he was found or turned himself in in Syria right and it's not as though the United States can credibly say that the Syrian government you know, when it finally um, finishes reconquering the rest of its country, you know, is going to give a fair trial to an American citizen or not torture him or, you know, this is not a partner government. It's not an allied government. And there isn't another government that we could turn him over to, given that he was captured in Syria and not in Iraq, for example. The other thing that's notable is we still don't have a DOD general counsel. (laughs) So some of the very, these are very (laughs) challenging legal questions, and there is no nominees for those positions. Right. So I think the key thing to watch here to decide how big a deal this case is, is does 
does he show up in law enforcement custody in a reasonably timely fashion, number one? And two, the, co the corollary question to that is, uh, does the government attempt to hold him in DOD custody for any protracted period of time? If the answer to the first question is yes and the second question is no, it's not the biggest deal in the world. It's a variant of a theme that we've seen a number of times, albeit not involving a U.S. citizen. There's one additional uh, variable here, which is this is a guy who did turn himself in and one uh, possibility here is that the reason it's, got, it's dark is that he's cooperating and that this is uh, a collaborative project at this point in which he doesn't want the publicity, his family doesn't want uh, because they're, they're, he is providing important information and being helpful and being taken care of. And that is something that... Uh, the military does with people who help all the time and, um, and uh, by the way, could be being done in conjunction with law enforcement or separately from law enforcement. And so, the, you know, I would just be hesitant to race to the conclusion that this is the reintroduction of sort of secret detention sites and overseas detention of U.S. nationals. It's certainly possible that that's what it will, the story will turn out to be. But there are a lot of intermediate possibilities before you get to that concern. But you're not just as a way of closing this out. You're not you wouldn't put it. I take it as a remote possibility that he gets shipped to Guantanamo or brought back in U.S. military custody. You would have seen that as a remote possibility under Obama. But not now. I think the chances that he goes to Guantanamo are near zero. OK. Um, I think the chances that he. Uh, ends up in protracted U.S. military custody. Uh, that's one of the one of the endpoints that I'm uh, keeping an eye on, and I don't think that chance is near zero. I don't think it will be near Guant at Guantanamo for any of several reasons. I do think if you uh, imagine uh, if you imagine the DOD General Counsel's office and Justice Department people talking about dispositions for this guy, the legal problems associated with protracted DOD detentions are substantial and uh, they will have a significant practical incentive to get him out of DOD custody in a reasonably timely fashion. And that's what I presume they are working on. Uh, and I think only ideological factors from the very top would counsel in a different direction. Isn't it that. an ideological factor that decided to start calling him an enemy combatant, though? Uh, that may be a reflection of those ideological factors, or it may be a way of talking about it that nods to that while you do the things that everybody would want to do anyway. Now, the, the, the uh, countervailing issue here is that the president did say he wants to, you know, deal with bad hombres by loading up Guantanamo with them, right? And so there is political pressure in a different direction. I think uh, the prospect of litigating a case like this and, you know, David Cole at the ACLU is rubbing his hands together thinking about this case. And, um, and there are a, a lot of people 
who would want to litigate this case, and none of them are at the Justice Department. I'm, I'm <laughs> betting Gitmo for precisely that reason, and uh-huh. he'll announce it by tweet. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally serious. Oh my! Oh my! <laughs> um, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I'll start with one uh, podcast that listeners of Rational Security might like, even if Casper Mattress sponsors it, which it might. I, you know, as long as it's not me undies, <laughs> is a uh, Preparar's new podcast. Stay tuned. Um, it, it's pretty good. Preparar, of course, was the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York. Um, fired, not fired, then kind of fired by Donald Trump. And he tells the story of that, uh, of how he left office in the first episode. Um, so far, basically sort of, you know, pre-interviewing like buddies of his, like Lisa Monaco and Leon Panetta, um, but actually quite revealing interviews. And he's a pretty lively podcast host, too. So I think it has themes and stories and things that people might be interested in. So check it out. I also think this is a podcast well worth a rational security shout out. The interview with Panetta is really interesting. It's good. And particularly his account of Russian espionage is very compelling and interesting. And their discussion about the takedown of that cell uh, of, uh, you know, of New Yorkers who were uh, actually, Russian agents yeah. is really, really worth the Americans. People's time. The Americans, one right. of whom was targeting Joe. I've told that story on uh, the podcast. Indeed, before. that's right. Um, and then uh, the discussion with Lisa Monaco is really valuable as well. Uh, and I particularly appreciated uh, that Preet uh, told in his in that episode a. Uh, story about his interactions with Chuck Rosenberg, the DEA mm-hmm. head who just stepped down over, uh, among other things, rule of law concerns about the president. And uh, he told a very kind of touching story about uh, their interactions when when Barrara became U.S. attorney. Yeah. It's just been a really good podcast so far, and I'm scheduled to go on it in a couple of weeks. So I'll... I'll yeah. The Monaco interview, if, you, if people are jammed for time, by the way, is a good one to listen to it for no other reason than she was the longest serving chief of staff to Bob Mueller when he was FBI director and has some very uh, affirmative things to say about the way Bob Mueller behaves and the way Bob Mueller does not behave, Ooh, which, is instru- which is instructive for trying to read the tea leaves of the Russia investigation. Speaking of which, I have an object lesson related to exactly that which is a uh, story in Politico this week by Darren Samuelson uh, about uh, Bob Mueller not being the source of the leaks that are um, uh, uh, flooding out about his investigation. And it contains a wonderful quote uh, from Steve Brill about uh, how you it's hard to even ask Bob Mueller for a leak. And um, Brill says that it, it's, it would be like asking him to watch a porn movie with you. <laughs> and, oh, my um, God. And I, I think the, uh, the story is really <sighs> worth people's reading as a compliment <laughs> um, as a compliment to my account of how to read news stories about sourcing uh, and uh, really backs up my sense that a lot of these stories are really not coming from my I'm going to send an email to Peter Carr, the spokesman for Bob Mueller, right now and saying, Peter, in the absence of the special counsel, leak anything to do me. Is he free to come over and watch a porn? (laughs) 
That's just amazing. ask if he has any comments. You know, just yeah. like, you know, does he have interested? Any, does he have any comment on my invitation? <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, well, um, I think that brings us to the end of the podcast, yeah? Um, I. Oh, wait, no, it doesn't. Has, yeah. It's right <laughs> you have an object. <laughs> Although it's not, it's not actually going to be. So, um, so my object while we are uh, in the business of log rolling podcasts. Sure. Uh, I can't help myself, but um, as regular listeners of Rational Security know, uh, one of the issues that I care a lot about and pay a lot of attention to is uh, the role of women experts in national security, both in and out of government. And I wanted to highlight a new podcast series, um, along with some great essays, uh, all of which you can find at women.cnas.org. The Center for New American Security has just launched this little mini website um, with some great short interviews um, with some amazing women who are prominent in our field and a couple of uh, essays and more to come uh, reflecting on the experience uh, of being a woman working in national security and foreign policy. Um, I find these uh, conversations engaging, inspiring, hilarious, um, sometimes uh, bittersweet, but very, very worth a listen. Women.cnas.org. All right. Uh, and now that brings us to the end of the podcast. <clears throat> this podcast, Rational Security, is a production of Spaghetti and the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive on our website. You can find us on Facebook and like us there and follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Please remember whenever you download the podcast from Apple or Stitcher or – gosh, are there any new podcatchers out there that I'm not aware of? I feel like I've tried them all. I just use like the default on my phone. Yeah. yeah. They're all – So out Whichever of one you like. Just leave that rating. Five cannons. And a positive review. It helps other people find us. We really appreciate it. Boom. Our show is edited by Matthew Kahn. Uh, our audio engineer, I should say, is Matthew Kahn. Our show is edited and <laughs> produced by Jen Patia. Our music was performed this week by T-Rex and the Merry Morons. Ooh, I like it. very nice. Uh, yeah. Yes. I need another M-word. jug band. <clears throat> it's a jug band. That's it. Yeah, the Merry Morons. Um, actually, Sophia Yan, who probably would happily play in a jug band and would be very good. And is not a moron. And is not a moron. Actually performs our music. On behalf of my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>